Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crew. We're the editors of Film Comment. This Friday, a new restoration of the 1989 indie classic Chameleon Street opens at BAM. Wendell B. Harris's utterly unique satire follows a real-life compulsive con man, Douglas Street, whose increasingly risky scams demonstrate both a sociopathic genius and a deep sense of pathos. Wendell not only wrote and directed the film, but, like his hero Orson Welles, also played the lead character with all of the dangerous charm of a man who conned his way into a surgical theater. On today's podcast, Wendell joined us for a fascinating oral history of the making of Chameleon Street, which won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance in 1990. He also revealed that he's pulled some cons of his own. In 1978, he scored an interview with classic Hollywood actor Herd Hatfield by pretending to be a film comment reporter. Wendell, when you find the tape, please do send it our way. Better late than never. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. Today, we're very excited to have a super special guest. He's someone whose work we've all revisited in the last few weeks with the New York Film Festival. It's Wendell B. Harris, the director of Chameleon Street, which was definitely a highlight of this year's NYFF revival section. And a really unusual, extremely original, pretty wild movie that we wanted to dig into and understand better and see where it came from and, you know, and what happened to it in the last couple decades. So we're really, really glad to have the director, Wendell, with us today. Thank you, Wendell, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I also wanted to quickly point out that the film was restored and is going to be in a wider release, if if I'm not mistaken, at, at, at playing at BAM in Brooklyn and elsewhere at, at uh, like-minded theaters across the country, I think on f- this coming Friday. October 22nd, I believe. Right. So you should have an opportunity to see it soon if you haven't yet. But, you know, we wanted to start by asking you, Wendell, a little bit about your background, you know, how you arrived at directing like like I said, we were just so taken with the film and trying to kind of place its influences. It even now in 2021 um, seems just very, very unique and idiosyncratic. So we thought uh, maybe you could start us off by telling us, you know, uh, how you really got into filmmaking and how you got to the point of making this movie. And that includes kind of acting and writing too. You know, were you did, were you first interested in writing? Were you first interested in acting? Just kind of how? What was your uh, background, basically? Well, I'll tell you how it all started. I was four years old, and I was sitting in my father's office watching television. And all of a sudden, this movie came on. I'm not even sure if I realized what movies were, but this movie came on, which, you know, when I look back on it now, it's the one time in my life where I can honestly say that I had like 
a downloading experience because in watching this film, it's as if the entire art of cinema was downloaded into my soul. And what, what, uh, what, what, what was the film? Do you remember? Oh, yes. Public Enemy with James Cagney. Oh, wow. And I think there's a little bit of an overlap there with Chameleon Street. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. And uh, that's that's where it all started. So from that moment on, you know, I I was very much aware that film was it. And everything that I did from that moment on was to fulfill myself in film. That's remarkable at four. I mean, that's that's so early. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, tell me, Davika, do you have any memories of being four years old? I really don't think so. When you said that, when you said you remember the movie and downloading the experience of cinema, I was just thinking, do I have any such memories from being four? And I can't recall anything that I haven't seen in a picture or something, you know, that is independent of what other people have told me or shown me. So that's just remarkable. And certainly nothing that would be kind of foundational in the way that you're describing it in terms of the work that I'm sure that it's possible that uh, Devika read some sort of um, work of criticism at a young age of film criticism, but it seems <laughs> unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it certainly didn't, certainly didn't happen to me that way. So you grew up in Flint, is that correct? That's right. As you were growing up then with this idea that you wanted to work in film in some capacity, how did you pursue that dream in Flint when, as a teenager growing up? Like what, what sort of outlets existed for you? Well, you know, my parents were incredible. And, you know, the older I get, the more in awe I am of my parents and how they raised us and exposed us to everything that was wonderful and supported all of our hopes and dreams and aspirations. So, you know, dad provided, well, my father was very much into still photography and eight millimeter cameras and super eight. And when I was eight years old, uh, you know, he got me a, a super eight camera and, and I started making films. Usually they were monster films. A couple of them were stop motion monster films like I had a a version of King Kong called Skull Island Revisited, which was a stop motion King Kong. And I used white fur for the fur for the model of King Kong because it was the best available fur I could find. So I I put together kind of an albino King Kong. Well, that's funny because it reminds me of the scene in Chameleon Street where your character spray paints the Barbie doll black. 
Right, and it, oh, and the scene where you're dressed up and as the is uh, the uh, beast. Beast. That's where are uh, your the character Douglas Street who you're playing is dressed up as the beast? Well, you know you you guys are kind of leading me into a confession which I've never made before, but I've been Uh-oh. thinking ever since Emma told me that I'd be talking to film comment, I've been dickering about in my mind as to whether I should share this, but I I think I will share it. You talk about the similarities you find. There is a similarity between my experience and Doug Street's. You know, at one point in the movie when Doug impersonates a Time Magazine reporter. Right, interviewing the a female basketball player, right? Right, Paula McGee. Right. Exactly. Great scene. Well, in 1978, I was back in Manhattan and I was reading through show business and backstage uh, just to see if there were any opportunities to audition. And I noticed that Herd Hatfield, who is the star of the picture of Dorian Gray, I noticed that he was in town and at the Actors Club So I contacted Herd Hatfield and told him that I was a reporter from Film Comment and that I was very interested in interviewing him. We've been looking for you, man. (laughs) Finally, the mystery is solved. I did not see that coming. I did not. That's incredible. What? what's, What's most incredible is that it got you access to the to the inter to the uh, to Herd Hatfield, which I'm surprised. Well, did it work? Wait, yeah, yeah but but did it work? And you you got the interview? Yes, dear, I sure did. But check this out. When I showed up, I was immediately accosted by uh, the. They had a black man there who, who was like in charge of the doorway, and he immediately told me that uh, Herd Hatfield's people had called Film Comments to verify (laughs) Wendell B. Harris Jr. as part of their uh, reporters. So my response was, well, I am definitely going to be uh, writing this for Film Comment and, you know, if you had called the right person, he would have verified my identity. And so they let me in. And I met and interviewed Herd Hatfield. And 10 years later, when I was interviewing Doug Street or Chameleon Street, I did not share with him, I have not shared with anybody this experience with Herd Hatfield and film comment, but... Well, here's my question. Do you have the interview? Where is the interview and can film comment have it now? (laughs) (laughs) The interview is on an audio tape somewhere floating in my storage. I have two huge storage bins. And 
I have not heard it actually since 1980, but it's still floating around there. And that is an amazing it, story. Wow. Yeah. It was an incredible interview and he, he was so gracious, even though he said, we didn't know who you were, Wendell. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> and he, you know, the, that whole point in the movie where they, where Melissa, played by Colette Haywood, she verifies with Time magazine, uh, you know, the identity of Doug Street. And uh, that, that really hit home with me because that's exactly what happened to Doug. And 10 years earlier, it had happened to me. So that is amazing that's a big exclusive clinton and Davika. this is a scoop i'm actually it, it also i'm interested in it seems like you have a real solid grounding in this kind of classic hollywood as a kid going back a little bit as a teenager young man did you spend a lot of time in theaters watching these movies and absorbing this kind of cinema listen clinton from age four and the public enemy with James Cagney until this move, this moment with me talking to you. Yeah. The film has been, it's been the primary goal of my life. So to answer your question, yeah, man, I've been watching, watching and learning from films and being inspired and, and, uh, amazed and at times distressed and disgusted and everything by film. You know, there is no, and I'm pretty sure you guys would agree with me, there is no more powerful and complex and expensive art form on the planet. So it's very interesting for me to look back because at the age of 11, I decided what my course would be in terms of approaching filmmaking. And, and I decided right up front that I would not try to master optics and that I would not try to master the actual mechanics of cinematography and that I would not try to master um, all of the technical aspects of filmmaking because it was very clear to me, one, that mathematics and optics were very closely related and mathematics was always my great bane. And I felt at the age of 11 that if I could get a firm handle on writing, directing, and acting, that that would be enough. So that was the agenda, uh, you know, to become strong enough as an actor and as a writer and as a director to make movies very forward thinking for an 11 year old i mean <laughs> what kind of made you 
want to do all three, you know, directing, writing and acting? Was it just this complete love for cinema or were you just good at too many things? No, I, you know, when I saw that performance of James Cagney at the age of four in Public Enemy, what really struck me was that this film had been made and perfected many years before and that it would be around forever and that all you had to do was act, write and direct and hire the right people to do all the, you know, the other aspects. And that is what drove me. I wanted to be able to give a great performance on film. And yet it seemed to me that the most expedient way to achieve that was to also write and direct it. It's so fascinating that you took this subject then as as the uh, you know the basis for your for your film this person Douglas Street who just acts essentially he's such an, an incredible actor he just enters these different characters one after the other in his life I was just curious I kind of wanted to talk a little more about the making of Chameleon Street itself so what the experience of making it and getting it produced was like and mm-hmm. sort of how did that match up to you know what these ideas you had about what it takes to make a movie nothing comes out of a vacuum and i've already shared with you that my experience with film begins at age four and you know i i absorbed during all those early years the achievement of orson wells who successfully acted and wrote and directed and he was not the only one. I mean, you know, there were others. Uh, von Stroheim did the same thing. And, you know. Melvin Van Peebles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, I mean, when I was like. When you were a kid. Growing up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. You know, Van Peebles. Whom, by the way, uh, I met uh, along with the executive producer of Chameleon Street, my mother. We met with. Melvin Van Peebles in 1986 because, you know, guys, another thing which I've only recently shared with one other uh, reporter, I was not originally supposed to direct Chameleon Street. I was supposed to act it. I was supposed to write it, but I was supposed to be directed by an experienced director you know my family the the other investors the board of my company all had come to the conclusion that 1.5 million dollars should be expended with a director who had a track record and it's only because every director that we approached either asked for too much money or turned the project down. We approached 
Marlon Brando, we approached Melvin Van Peebles, we approached Michael Apted, and um, I even approached Stanley Kramer. Did you end up in a meeting with Melvin Van Peebles? Yeah, yeah, we met with him. He is one, in fact, frankly, he's the only one who actually said yes. We, the only reason that he did not end up directing Chameleon Street is because of the money he was asking for. Uh, and, he, you know, you guys understand, of course, I'm sure, that especially with independent filmmaking, but also with big budget Hollywood, I, the money makes many of your decisions for you. And after Melvin Van Peebles asked for more money than we could expend on his salary, uh, we finally came to the conclusion that Wendell was the poor man's choice to direct the film. So that's how that went down. It turned out, it turned out well, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> But this discussion you mentioned earlier, uh, your mother being the executive producer, I think, right? Right. I'm interested in the funding for this film, how you were able to get the that $1.5 million together, what that process was like kind of on the ground, because mm -hmm. I imagine it was uh, uh, quite a quite a long and grueling, <laughs> grueling struggle to get to kind of get people to give you money for this project. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? I can tell you exactly how it happened. And it was a three-year process. Wow. And I've often described the process of all the meetings that we had with potential investors, over a hundred, my mother and myself. I've often described that process as akin to scraping dried blood off the sidewalk with a butter knife, oh, God. it just went on and on, and it was so difficult. So, did you just go around to different people? Like, who who did you? Who, what kind of people were you trying to get money from? Like, who did you just find local people in Flint who you thought might be interested, or? And also, when when did you finish the script? I'm curious. Like, what was the period between the script being done and the movie being made? Yeah. Well, that's a good question too. And both of your questions dovetail into each other because after the first year of writing the script, I thought I was ready to make the film. But after the first year, we still hadn't raised the money. So the actual process of making the budget, that process took three years. And after the first year, even though I thought the, the script was ready at the time, I just kept on rewriting it during the next two years. And ultimately, the script was rewritten 36 times. I went through 36 drafts, constantly uh, revising, rewriting, and that's only because 
we didn't have the money in place after the first year. Now, in retrospect, you guys, I can tell you right now, uh, God was smiling because if I had made Chameleon Street with, with that first year's script, it would have, it would not have been as successful as the three-year script. And I thank the Lord that he prolonged the budget uh, gathering experience into a three-year period because it just gave me the time to really get that script in order. This must have been the mid-80s? Yeah. I first read about Doug Street in the spring of 1985. How old were you at this time? Well, I was born in 54, so... So mathematics is also sort of a weak point of mine. Yeah, but I can tell Devika is smart. Hey, what... Devika, how old was I in 85? (laughs) And you said you were born in 54? Right. 31. Gee, I'm so impressed. I don't. Why am I doing this job? Actually, you know, I could be. I could be a human calculator. <laughs> Thank you, Wendell. Because you know what? Very rarely am I called upon to apply my mathematics skills in this line of work. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm curious about the you know actual production process for the film. So the funding it ultimately came from where just you know family community or were you able to patch together some funders? Well, all of that, Devika, all of that. But let me tell you very quickly what the numbers are. My parents, Dr. Wendell B. Harris, Senior and my mother, Helen B. Harris, they invested $480,000 into the $1.5 million budget. My brother, Hobart, a Harvard-educated doctor, Hobart invested $120,000. The remainder, $200,000, odd dollars, 200,000. That was from investors. And that's what took three years. We wanted to ask also about the actual production process mm-hmm. too. Right. So after the after you secured all this funding, was this film, this film was shot in Flint? Is that, is that right? I would say 75, 80% was shot in Flint. The remainder was shot in Ann Arbor and mm-hmm. Detroit. Hmm. So did you cast uh, local actors or where, where were you looking for, um, for actors? How are, you, how are you getting people in for auditions and things like that? Well, yes, 
many local actors were auditioned and many local actors uh, comprise the cast. In fact, the majority of the actors in Chameleon Street are Michigan actors. But I want you guys to know the part of, I mean, we did seek outside of Michigan and especially we sought a female actor to play Street's wife, Gabrielle. And, you know, we negotiated with Latoya Jackson and her father, Kathy Tyson, you know, Kathy Tyson from uh, Mona Lisa. And Atala Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X. And, and we also approached Oprah Winfrey. And none of those worked out. So ultimately, the part was played by Angela Leslie, who was from Detroit. And Angela, Angela had done several feature films prior to Chameleon Street. And uh, she, she, she also had a very national modeling career. She's very good in, in Chameleon Street. That character is trapped between her love for this really difficult individual and yes. like her desire to maybe escape this this life. And you always get the sense that she's a little smarter than Right, right. You know, she's letting on and she's very mm -hmm. uh, she has great screen presence. Yeah, she's wonderful. I wanted to ask a little more about, you know, the look of the movie. There are elements of it that feel very 90s, you know, whether it's the wry voiceover or the sort of sometime non-narrative ellipses and, uh, you know, just this kind of moving in and out of what seems like reality and, and some register right. of fantasy. But it, it all comes together in this very idiosyncratic way. And I, I was just curious what stylistic references you had in mind while you were putting together the film, you know, were there any discussions you had with your DP or, you know, with the craftspeople working on the film about how you wanted it to look and feel? Yes, yes. Very good question. And I'll, I'll try to answer quickly. Uh, there were two things that I kept telling the crew and definitely the cinematographer, Dan Noga, as we were shooting. I would tell all the actors, for example, because, you know, this is 1987 that we're shooting. So there is no internet. There is no reality show really uh, phenomenon. So I, but I definitely wanted the film to be as absolutely rooted in reality as possible. So I, I, I kept telling everybody, listen, you guys, come on, make it like 60 minutes. Make it like, like we're on 60 minutes. Like this is really happening. And my cinematographer, Dan Noga, and the second unit director, Bruce Shermer, 
I kept telling them, look, guys, I want that clockwork orange Kubrick lighting. Give me that. Give me that Kubrick lighting. I, I, <laughs> I kept saying that. That razor sharp Kubrick lighting. And one thing that I asked Dan Noga, the cinematographer, to do was, uh, Dan, I don't want any filters used in this movie. No filters. I want a razor sharp Stanley Kubrick look. I was really struck by how many things the movie touches upon that feel very kind of buzzy and contemporary today, whether it's cultural appropriation and random acts of racism, passing and code switching. I mean, he's, Doug is kind of a con man, but he's also doing this thing of, you know, infiltrating these spaces that he's may not be allowed into. And that's because he's able to code switch very effectively. Right. I thought it was very impressive that you walk a very fine line in some of these scenes, you know, like they're uh, kind of a little provocative, but you you manage to just kind of stop it somewhere where it works and the tone is just right, but it's dark, but it's also funny, where it's really unsettling, but it's also... That surgery scene. And the prison scene when the cook, you know, is, is trying to sleep with Doug and... Yeah, and I, I was just wondering, how did you kind of arrive at the at what what you were trying to say, and how far would be too far, and what kind of humor? I mean, were you thinking about the audience, for instance? Like, were you thinking like what kind of audience would this work for? Devika, I'm glad you asked that question because I I want to make something very clear, and it's a point that I, I keep on having to make because people. Not that I'm accusing you guys, I'm just saying many people, many reporters, many audience members approach me and they have a mindset that Wendell kind of concocted out of his imagination or his own personal experience, Chameleon Street. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I spent three years interviewing, filming, taping, getting letters from Doug Street. I didn't go to his family. I didn't go to his kindergarten teacher or his ex-wives or his attorneys to get an impression or information about Doug, a well-rounded portrait. Everything came from Doug. It's as if I said to Clinton, look, Clint, I want you to give me everything that you've ever experienced and I'll write it down and you answer all my questions and we'll put together a movie called Clinton. No, I got a better title. My regrets. (laughs) Clinton's regrets. Right. Uh, And that would be the source of Clinton's regrets. Clinton would be the source. Well, Doug is the source of Chameleon Street. So did and, Doug have this kind of sense of humor about what he'd been, what he'd done and what he'd been doing? Because the, the film is very funny and you do have this light touch with a lot of things that could be kind of disturbing mm-hmm. as a filmmaker. 
I think that if Doug were right now with us on this interview, at some point, you guys would be amused and charmed by right. him. Of course. Because, yeah, he, he has a very strong, mordant sense of humor. And that definitely informs the film. Because, uh, as I said, my goal was to put together a movie that was essentially from his point of view. I'm curious, what did you think of him as? Like, do you see him as a con man? You know, do you see him as just this hyper-intelligent man who, you know, was was sort of just making his way through the world? Or, I mean, reading his story, I had the sense of, a little bit of pathos as well. This man who couldn't find a job, even though he was clearly extremely good at many things. And so this is the way he was able to do all these things is by cheating and deceiving. I I don't know. I just, he's so unplaceable in the film. There's an element of compulsion too, right? I mean, there's an, it's, it's almost like he can't help himself. I fervently believe that if, America had somehow not been riddled by racism, you guys would never have seen Chameleon Street because it's Doug's reaction to racism, which is the main goad to all of his actions. And, uh, one quick thing I'll say, just so you guys know, uh, I have had some exposure over the years to people who actually knew Doug, people who actually interfaced with Doug. And that includes family members and attorneys and ex-wives. And believe you me, you guys, uh, the people who actually dealt with Doug uh, eventually end up exceedingly exasperated by him. And as I said to someone recently, the most negative reactions I've ever gotten to Chameleon Street have been from those people who actually knew and were touched by Doug. You know, they are absolutely appalled that a feature film was made about him because they think that somehow the film celebrates and glorifies someone who ended up hurting them. You know, they always, I always think of the word ravished. People feel ravished by Doug. Uh, and Doug, in turn, feels ravished by racism. And I don't know if you guys are aware, but, you know, the film covers 1970 to 1985, but Doug's 
impersonation career continued after 1985. I just read actually an article from 2017. He was just recently convicted again for impersonating a a defense contractor, I think. Something. And, uh, and, but the story is like you're saying, it's kind of sad because the, his lawyer, anyway, the argument his defense was making was that he was, this is the only way he could get a job at this point is to continue to impersonate people because of his record. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. it, it's just, it's incredible that he's still able to do it at all. And also, I read that the law firm, or not the law firm, uh, the Human Rights, Detroit's Human Rights Commission, I think is what it's Right. Called. Yeah. They apparently said when he was found out that, you know, if he straightens his act and comes back, we'll take him because he was so amazing at legal counseling. I, I, I don't know that that just kind of moved me you know i mean again this- he's just a really tragic figure but just such so uh you know he's a real person but taking him out uh, taking him as a character turning this real person you know considering him as a character i think it's just such a rich character he's just such a rich character there's so much to think about yeah. and talk about yeah i i'm wondering Devika, and you too clinton are you guys moved by, and I'll direct this at Devika because she's female. Are you moved by Doug performing hysterectomies on women who thought he was a qualified surgeon and yet he never finished high school? Now you're putting you've put me in a in a tough spot, haven't you? I, I was moved by that. That was a pretty like that was. A, I was like that was a part where, especially the way that you frame that, I think it's like insane. I mean, <laughs> so. I it's very difficult for me to think of him as a real person. I mean, after I watched the film, I went and read about him, and I was just like, this can't have been real. How could this have been real? It just blows my mind that he actually was successful at all of this and when i say moved i don't know there's something mythic about it no i mm-hmm. i mean people spend millions of dollars to go to med school and years to get training and he went in and actually per- successfully performed surgeries like it's that kind is of unbelievable. scary but it's also like this man is like a savant he's a fucking right. genius just you know <laughs> walking around and uh, unable to unable or i i'm not sure but having doing work legitimately but still real work like well you know it's the uh shakespeare's sister you know, yeah. theory of history my brother hobart spent eight years attending harvard's med school doug street didn't finish high school so what does that mean? Did that really happen? Did that happen as you portrayed in the film? Though, not this is like sort of a dumb question. I know, <laughs> but did did he really just sort of like read up on hysterectomies like in the bathroom and then roll and then go into the theater and, <laughs> and perform the hysterectomy? Or maybe that's as, what he claimed. <laughs> maybe that's what he claimed. Yeah. 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 Look, you know, I just read recently somebody saying that. He performed a hysterectomy after reading a book in a bathroom. And, you know, that's not quite, 
I didn't I'm quite sure, mean yeah. to give that impression. I mean, you know, he goes into the bathroom <clears throat> to find a specific answer to a specific question. But I mean, he didn't go into a, the bathroom in order to, okay, where do I make the cut? Right. What, where's the uterus? What? Open up the dictionary to hysterectomy. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, so, uh, but even so, even yeah. so, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, he seems like he was very well read and observant, so I'm sure he was, you know, exactly. Yeah, right. exactly. Uh, on, a, on some sort of supernatural level, though. And according to Doug, you know, he had observed hysterectomies before he actually did his own. Mm. I mean, he was there posing as an intern and a doctor in several operations prior to his actually performing the hysterectomy so there was a build-up beyond zipping into the bathroom and opening the Merck manual i want to talk a little bit as we wrap things up here about the film's reception at sundance quickly i know that there was some disappointment following that when the film was in it, when you weren't able to find a distributor but if you could talk quickly about that process what what that what that felt like to get some validation from that uh, that uh, prize that the film won at Sundance in 1990? Well, very quickly, I'll tell you what it felt like. It felt like it felt like everything I'd ever wanted had come true. It felt like, oh, Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a Sally Field now. Hollywood likes me. They really like me. And Uncanny. <laughs> 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 you could pass for her. <laughs> so, you know, I was I was really fooled because I had no in intention of going out to Hollywood after uh Chameleon Street was released. You were going to stay in Michigan and continue exactly. to independent films there. Oh. Exactly, exactly. But you know, Clinton Movie making is a very interesting uh, experience because it is so expensive. And if you don't make a profit, you may not make your next film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've got to make a profit. And we bent everybody's, no, we didn't bend. We broke everybody's back making Chameleon Street. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all the investors, my family, all the friends who put money into it, all of the municipalities in Flint and Detroit, everybody bent over backwards to make mm -hmm. the film. And nobody makes a film in order to, to see it suppressed, just like nobody gets married in order to get divorced. So when Chameleon Street did not make back the money that was expended to make it, that was quite devastating for me. And so did that just become this sort of albatross or did you, did you work on other projects? Were there other scripts that you tried to get made? You know, what happened after? What happened after was I spent the next three to seven years 
writing scripts in order to attempt making back the money that Chameleon Street lost. I wrote a script called The Brown, the Brown Bomber about Joe Lewis. Uh, and, you, you know, that was 80,000. I wrote a UFO script for Jerry Weintraub. That was 120,000. Uh, and I wrote a script for Showtime called Bowley. Bowley, which uh, takes place in 1932 in Oklahoma. Google Bowley sometime. It's just an amazing story about a black township at the height of the depression uh, who, uh, you know, they've got a federal bank in town. They've got, and they, they are so prosperous and it's all black so prosperous that the gangster pretty boy Floyd and his gang attempt to rob that town and are absolutely blown away. That's what Bowley is about. And that was written for Showtime. None of these films got made and they also didn't make back the money Chameleon Street lost, but that's what I spent like the next seven years doing, attempting to get, and, and also there were other deals coming my way, many deals that I was turning down. I was offered the chance to direct Maniac Cop 3. And there was another movie about a guy who had a, an arm coming out of his stomach, which they eventually made, I think, with Judd Reinhold. Uh, I was offered to direct that. As a kind of wrap-up question, because we have taken too much of your time, after going through all of this, I mean, so amazing to hear about this whole journey you had with the film. How do you feel about it being out in the world again? This The restoration looks beautiful. You know, it's um, mm -hmm. garnered a lot of interest at the festival and with the theatrical screening. I'm curious how you're feeling about everything. Interesting that you would ask that. And, you know, I, I'm very gratified and impressed by what Arbelos Films has been doing in terms of the restoration and handling the publicity. Uh, I was just thinking last night, Tabrika, I was just thinking, you know, when something happens that you thought should and would and could happen at the age of 27, and it happens instead at 67, my friends, I'll tell you, it's a profound experience, very profound. And I, I am extremely, <laughs> I'm extremely gratified that Chameleon Street is getting all this attention, but even as we speak, I want you to know that Chameleon Street is still essentially unseen. Uh, you know, I always use this as an example. I'm not picking on Weekend at Bernie's. I'm not picking on, on it. But I use it as a good example because it came out 
around the same time Chameleon Street came out. And whenever I run into anybody on the planet, I can ask them, have you ever heard of Weekend at Bernie's? And they all, it, 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 it doesn't matter where I am, they all say, oh yeah, yeah, I've seen it, or I got a copy of it, or whatever. If I ask anybody on any continent, have you seen or heard of Chameleon Street? The answer is always no. So, you know, I give credit to film critics and film festivals for keeping the film alive for 30 years. But believe you me, my friends, you can go to a million film festivals and show your film and nobody, I mean, not, I don't mean literally nobody, but the film is still unseen. And whenever I go around the world doing Q and A sessions for Chameleon Street, I always come out and this has been happening for 25 years. I always come out and there's a gasp, a huge gasp because you know, Chameleon Street and Clinton has kind of touched upon this. Well, you both have, you know, you know that kind of avant-garde edge that Chameleon Street has, it kind of gives the impression that it was made maybe last week or last month or a couple of years ago. It and really whenever does, people, yeah. yeah, right. And it's got that ambiance. And so whenever I show up, people think, good God almighty, Dorian Gray in the flesh. What happened, man? And <laughs> that has been happening for 25 years because uh, the film, mm. you know, the film comes out of nowhere for people and they haven't heard about it. And like I say, it looks like it was made recently. So when they see me, they say that there's always this gasp uh, when I show up. So it would be so wonderful if the film was well known so I could stop hearing that gasp. Well, we're doing our best to spread the word here. And I really hope I really hope that this re-release will will help more people see it because it is a film that really deserves to be seen by as many people as possible. And thank you so much for joining us, Wendell. Yes, thank you for sharing the film and your time. And your confession. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I want you to know, guys, talking to film comment is like, I don't keep a bucket list, but if I did, <laughs> talking to film comment would be right there. Oh, that's that's uh, very nice. We're very flattered. Thank you so much, guys. I love you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.